precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no, nothing but the blood of Jesus. He Father, you are Lord, and that is the reason that we gather together as the body of Christ this morning, to worship and to praise the one true living Lord. Father, may those not be words that we just sing, but, they, but may they be the truth that we live our lives by. May they be the truth that our mouths speak. Father, you are Lord. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, majesty. Father, the adjectives could go on and on. So, Father, as we gather here in this place this morning, may we push aside all of the other things that crowd into our lives, and may we turn our eyes completely upon you, focus completely upon you, and allow you to minister to us as we worship and praise your holy name. Father, open our hearts and our ears to receive from you today that which you would have us to hear. And Father, may it make a difference in our lives and may we go out from this place and apply it to our lives. May we share it with others. When others see us, when they experience us, may they know that there is something truly different about us. 
Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on the cross, that we might be restored to that right relationship with you. So, Father, as we continue in worship this morning, may it, may it be with a heart of gratitude. May it be with a heart of praise and worship that you might be lifted high, that all might be drawn unto you. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. Amen. I'd love for us to all stand together. You see the reference to the scripture verse at sporting events all across the world, and I want you to say it like you're at a sporting event. John 3.16, let's say it with energy and excitement this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? dry. Drink of the water, come and thirst no more. Come all ye sinners, come find his mercy. Come to the table, he will satisfy. Taste of his
cross. Jesus is waiting. God so loved the world. Amen. He is mighty to save.
are mighty to save. You have conquered sin and death because you love us. Because the Heavenly Father loves us. He had a plan to defeat sin and death. For us to have victory. And that plan was that his one and only son would willingly lay down his life in our place. Thank you for that. May we shine the light of Jesus to all that we come in contact with. May that be our focus this week, to shine the light of Jesus and to tell the world that Jesus loves them and has provided salvation for them. May that be our heart's cry. be seated but as you're seated children it is time for children's time so come on up kids so you guys gonna do a little preaching today huh well maybe I should sit down here we're just kind of confused, aren't we? We don't know where to go. Are you going to sing again? I understand when I was not here last time, Mr. Warren led you in some singing, huh? Well, I tell you what, you guys look great just the way you are. I want to ask you about this. This month is kind of a special month. What happens? We get lots of candy. We've got the fall festival here in two weeks. Are you going to come to that? Are you going to be here for that? Yeah, man, we won't, we won't. Uh, you know, that speaker would probably cost you a bunch. So we are this. Fall, what's a fall festival? It's when we, in the parking lot, we have all kinds of things, to games and activities, face painting, and lots and lots of candy. So be sure and invite your friends to come to that. Now to get some candy, and there's another thing that happens toward the end of the month, and maybe some of you will participate, maybe not, but... We get candy, right? How do you get candy? Well, it's kind of like something that happens in the Bible. When we come here to worship, Jesus wants to give us something. How do you receive something? Well, you have to have your hands wide open. So if your hands are just like this, go ahead and put them just like this. Close them up real, real tight. And I'm going to try to give you some candy. Keep your hands closed real, real tight. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> Figured out a way to get it, huh there, Everly? <laughs> you know, if we really want to receive something, we need to what? Open up our hands, right? Every time we come here to worship, God is asking us to open up our hands because he wants to give us something. What are some of the things that he might want to give us? Well, let's look in the Bible and see if maybe there's a clue. Have you ever heard of the book of Galatians? And have you ever heard of this thing called the fruit of the Spirit? Yes. You have? Good. Well, here's the fruit of the Spirit. These are some things that Jesus wants to give us, but the only way we're going to receive them is if we have our hands wide open and we say, 
Lord, would you please give me that? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love? Joy? You can say it with me if you know it. Peace? Kindness? You said patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Very good. And we have to have our hands wide open to receive that, just like we're going to receive some candy here in just a minute. So I've got candy for you, but I want you to think about every time you come to worship here, you just take a minute to open up your hands. And what if we invited all the adults to do the same thing? Because, you know, some of these adults, they come with their hands pretty close too. And that we all would open our hands and say, God, would you speak and give me what you want? So, should we pray first or should we get candy first? Pray first. Kind of a mixed bag there. How about if we pray first? And then we'll let Mr. Warren give you candy over here, okay? Can we do that? Well, let's pray together, all right? And then I'll, I'll let you pick up. He'll give you some candy, but you have to have your hands wide open, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for the innocence of these little children. Thank you for their zest for life, their enthusiasm. And may we as adults learn something from that. And may all of us realize that to receive your gifts, we've got to have our hands open. Help us to undo our fist and to be willing to receive anything that you would give and embrace that as a wonderful gift, knowing that your word tells us every good and perfect gift comes from you. So we thank you for that and help us to remember this simple lesson in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, be very careful and probably we want the girls to go first, right? And we just need it. We can kind of come off here and... I know. He's always wanting gimme, gimme, gimme. So Y'all can come on down. Thank you for coming down to spend some time with me. I'm really proud of you guys. Be careful stepping down. Don't want anybody to get hurt. want to share a couple of things with you before we uh, press on. Thinking about Halloween, uh, some of you don't participate in that, and uh, I, I just want to encourage you to think of it maybe in a little bit different light. You may not let your kids go out. You may. Uh, no judgment here. Just I know there's a lot of opinions about that. But my, my request of you is leverage the opportunity for all the kids that are coming to your house. Uh, every Halloween, I will give away well over three, almost 400 tracks to kids. They don't come any other time in the year for me to give them the gospel. And so think of some creative ways to make your house a fun place for kids to come. What I do is I take a, a Ziploc bag, I put a track in there, and I put some candy in there, and I put an invitation card to Westgate. And then when they come, just toss it in the bag, and everybody seems happy. It's a great opportunity to leverage the opportunity that we have. Because uh, I know for some of you, uh, you want to close the door, turn off the light, and just get through it. Um, 
but it's a great opportunity for us. We've got to be thinking kingdom-minded. Uh, if they won't come to church, then how can we get them into the kingdom? How can we share the gospel with them? Uh, another thing, um, you know, as we gather for worship, sometimes the, the assessment of the week is how good was the worship service. The worship service is the tip of the iceberg of what happens at Westgate. It may feel like, and, and if, if that feels like this is the, the main thing that happens, um, I would encourage you to get more involved because there's so many things that are happening uh, throughout the week. One of those, we've gone over 500 uh, meals that have been served over at Bruno's to the medical community, and you have paid for that. Uh, at least I hope you have. We're, we're paying for that just as a gesture to say thank you for what you are doing out there on the front lines with COVID and have been for a year and a half. So I'm going to ask, uh, Lynn, right behind you, you're going to see a big stack, I think, on that table. And uh, let me ma make sure we've got the right one. This is the last week that we're doing that. Yes, would you pass that around and let people just pray over those? Uh, and you can pass them in many different directions. This is last week, last few days. It ends on October the 15th. It's been going on since September the 15th. And um, just so many people are grateful for what's happening. And every one of them gets a gospel presentation made to them. Uh, so take some time to pray over those cards. Uh, and then another thing that will be happening in the, uh, the weeks to come is we need uh, some people that really have the gift of administration and are great at details and like for things to look nice. So if you're a messy person, this might not be for you. This is something that needs to look really nice, well done, beautifully presented, and that we are going to be sending a copy of the Innkeeper's Journal to every member of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., the Senate, the White House, and the Vice President of the United States. So we're going to be wrapping these up, bundling them up. The books have already been paid for. We do need to pay for the postage. But we'll be sending those out the first part of November, so in the next few weeks we need some help in wrapping these, getting them together, organizing all of the labels so that the label matches, uh, goes to the right person. So if you want to help out with that, you can let us know after the service in, in some capacity. And then I've got to express a little bit of concern. Uh, this morning when I came in, uh, of course I was out in the parking lot visiting with people that were leaving. Uh, I'm not sure what the message is there, but they were leaving, so I was visiting with them. But uh, anyway, I came in here, and, and Shirley Bardis was sitting next to me, and, and I thought, wow, what a, what a bonus to be able to sit next to Shirley this morning. And then it dawned on me, Shirley used to be the secretary of very high-powered pastors. She was their handler. And I thought, maybe someone is saying I need a handler uh, to kind of watch over me so that I don't do anything wrong. But anyway, if you didn't know that about Shirley, she used to manage uh, the pastors down at First Baptist Church, when First Baptist is one of the largest churches in the country. And so thank you for letting me sit next to you and just try to sing. I felt like I was in the choir singing next to you. So. Well, let's pray together. God, we are thankful that we, we get to be here to worship. And we know that worship is a very important part of our lives individually, daily, and collectively as a church body, an opportunity for us to introduce other people to who Jesus Christ is. Thank you for the experiences that we have had. Thank you for the time that we now have to look at your word, to recognize just the power of who you are. Lord, we pray for all of these endeavors that we've talked about, 
the opportunity of, of Halloween coming up, in which it's so easy to write it off as something of darkness. Okay, you've empowered us, just in this room, to have the opportunity to share the gospel with thousands upon thousands of children in the weeks to come. Help us to think through, even now, intentionally, how we're going to do that. Go ahead and buy the tracks. Figure out what we're going to do so that the gospel will be shared. We thank you for the opportunity of sending the message of who you are to those that lead our country. Pray that you would guide us, even as teams gather now and begin to prepare for how that will be done. Lord, we think of the medical community and all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have stopped by for a free meal, courtesy of Westgate. And through that experience, they've heard of what it means to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Help us to be faithful. God, sometimes we get so fixated on how's our church doing that we forget about the kingdom. And you have called us to not worry about how the church does, but to worry about the kingdom. And not even to worry, but to just completely submit ourselves with hands extended, palms wide open, and say, Lord, what would you have us to do? So please help us to do that. Guide us now through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we come to John chapter 18, second part of the chapter. And as we do, uh, we're reminded of Jesus' sovereignty, John's purpose in writing the gospel. We've called it the great interruption. I mean, we've seen this over and over and over, of Jesus just interrupting lives. And, and I hope that he interrupts our life today. Whatever we've come with, no matter what position or disposition we have right now, that, that Jesus will interrupt our lives with a message that we need to hear. John has meticulously been writing about the sovereignty of Jesus. He wants us to get that. That's why he's writing the gospel. And so we go back to the purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31, and he says, you know, Jesus did so many things. That's what he says in, in verse 30 of that chapter. Jesus did so many miraculous things, but, but I've recorded these. I've, I've written these particular episodes from his life so that you may believe, that you who read, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He has been building a case for the sovereignty of Christ. What is... What does the sovereignty of Christ mean? It means that he reigns supreme over all things. There is no higher authority, no greater power, no greater being than God himself. So know that as we go into John chapter 18, because we have a very distorted view, many people have a very distorted view of what happens in this chapter and what we'll see in, in just a moment. And John is saying, Jesus is sovereign over everything. And then we need to see about Jesus' declaration in John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said, and he said it on multiple occasions, but he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And where we're going to find Jesus today, as he going through this trial process, he is bound, literally, like Isaac would have been bound when he was taken up on Mount Moriah, the same area when Abraham was called to see if he would sacrifice his son Isaac. We would picture what we're about to see as the greatest 
tragedy in human history. But actually, it's one of the greatest demonstrations of Jesus' divinity. If we're not careful, we'll look at Jesus as some kind of victim. We talk about all the injustices that happen in his trials. But Jesus is not a victim. So the title of this message is called The King and His Court. Twelve different times in this narrative in John's Gospel about the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus is connected with the word king. Reminds us of Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, in which Jesus is called the king of kings and the Lord of lords to say that there is no one that reigns more supreme than he. And in the very next chapter in Revelation 20, verse 11, Jesus is seated on the great white throne and he is identified as the judge. So here is Jesus, the king, in his court. We'd like to believe that Jesus is being dragged away against his will and given an unjust sense of, um, of justice, but it's not the case at all. A judge presides over the courtroom. A judge is the one who, who sets the rules and the tenor of the trial. And we're going to see that in Jesus' trial, he's the one that sets the rules. He's the one that sets the tenor. Now, we all know about the illegalities of Jesus' trial. We know that it was held at night. Illegal. Couldn't do that. We know that he was sentenced to death on the same hours as his trial. Couldn't do that. It had to be separate days. We know that he was presumed to be guilty before he even walked into the room. That was against the law. The court hired false witnesses to testify against him. He was physically abused and beaten during the trial itself. And he was found guilty without even having a defense. Let's pick up the story as we were kind of in this mixture here between Peter's denials, and we've already covered that. We, we kind of worked around this. But it says in John chapter 18, verse 19, meanwhile, meanwhile, talking about we know what's going on outside the house, that Peter is denying the Lord. Meanwhile, inside the house, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Who's the high priest? We know it's Caiaphas, but John is referring to the high priest as Annas because he was the real high priest. We think of a priest, we think of someone that's probably got some integrity, not a lick. Annas was the most powerful Jew in all of Jerusalem, in all of Israel. He ran the temple, even though he was not the high priest. He had lost that opportunity, that position, by Pilate's predecessor. So he served from the year A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. So he's not the high priest, his son-in-law Caiaphas is. But Annas would have been the high priest when Jesus came to the temple as a 12-year-old. You remember Quirinius in the Christmas story? He was the one who appointed Annas to be the high priest. He was a greedy guy who profited from everything within the temple. It was a business, and he was much like the godfather of the mob. It was cloaked in religion, nothing close. Twice, Jesus had interrupted his business. His business was what? When people would come to the temple to make sacrifices, 
the priest would look at their sacrifices and they would always find a defect. So they'd have to buy another animal from his flock. And oh, by the way, it's just a little bit more expensive. People would come with their money, but their money wasn't good at the temple, so they had to go through the exchange rate, and they always lost in the exchange. It was mass corruption. And when Jesus cleansed the temple two different times, he upset everything about Annas' empire. So when they wanted to know, by what authority do you cleanse the temple? They were wondering, who in the world are you? Because no one would dare to go up against Annas unless they had some incredible backing with incredible authority. Jesus threatened their control and their corruption that they were profiting from. And when Annas strikes out at Jesus, has him stricken in the face, he's simply just venting his frustrations. You know, we get angry about the things we can't control. Isn't that true? We think angry is such a mystery, but basically we get angry about the things we can't control. Maybe we can't control ourselves. Maybe we can't control somebody in our family. Maybe we can't control a situation. We can't control a, a health diagnosis. Maybe we can't control what's happening in somewhere, no matter what it is. And we get angry. And so here is Annas, extremely angry with all of the religious leaders, and they decide that they're going to take Jesus over to Caiaphas, who was in the same building, and he's the official high priest. And John doesn't record that because all he wants us to see is that Jesus is sovereign. We get to verse 28, and it says, When the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, by now it was early morning. Jesus has been awake all night long, yet he never sins. That should tell us something. Have you ever said when you do something kind of grumpy or wrong to someone else, maybe in your family or, or somewhere else, and you say, oh, I'm just tired? Kind of like that excuses it. I'm tired. Well, we do bad things when we're tired, and here's Jesus all night being up, being beaten on all throughout the night, yet he remains pure in every way. So in early morning, they take him over to Pilate, but they wouldn't go inside because they wanted to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness. Be reminded of where we are. Again, before I lose you, I want you to realize this is Jesus in his court. He is in complete control of everything. When Annas strikes him in the face and Jesus points that out to him and says, why have you struck me in the face? Have I testified incorrectly? He was making a point of order to say, you are out of line in what you're doing. He's pointing out his corruption. He's pointing out the deceit in his heart. And when he comes before Pilate, it says they won't go inside to Pilate's house. Pilate's house was a, was a Gentile. Pilate didn't want to be there. In fact, he is coming down from Caesarea where he normally would be, but he, come down, he came down for the Passover because that was the time in which the greatest chance of a revolution was, was there. And so he comes down to try to rule and reign in a very tenuous time. And they won't go inside of Pilate's house. Why? Because he's a Gentile. And if they go inside Pilate's house to try to condemn an innocent man of death, then they won't be able to observe the rest of the Passover, which goes for seven days. So here is Jesus, the embodiment of everything the Passover represents. 
standing before them. And they want to kill him, but they don't want to go inside a Gentile's house because then they will become unclean and they can't observe the rest of the Passover. It's interesting that what has taken place is that the religious leaders had gathered together in the temple and they had a, a place in which they would rule and it was designed to look like a threshing floor. You remember what a threshing floor is? Is where people in ancient days would come together and they would have this big area in which they would take the wheat and they would throw it up into the air. And the chaff would blow away and the seeds, the kernels, would fall to the ground. It was separating the wheat from the chaff. Same as done here in a court of law in which they gather, they're separating the truth from the error. But they don't even see the error of their ways. The high priest was essentially the king. Pilate is the king. He's the most powerful man in all of this area. And let's pick up the rest of the story. It says they wouldn't enter in because they wanted to be able to observe the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? There is no way they could be at this particular point of the story without Jesus being in control. They have violated every rule, every law. And here they are standing before Pilate and you see the animosity that they have towards each other. And he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? You're here early in the morning. What's the charge that you bring against him? And they respond, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Notice they don't give the charge. They just say, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't be here. They hate each other. You think of all the things that Pilate did to them. He, he was a, a greedy, swindler, selfish, arrogant, weaselly, vacillating leader. He had already five different times killed Jews. He had offended them in so many ways that if he made one more mistake, this Caesar was going to take away his authority and his position. And so they both hate each other. And Pilate said, take him yourself. Judge him by your own law. They respond by saying, we have no right to execute anyone. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he would die. Jeff alluded to that in his prayer, John 12, 32. That if he be lifted up. See, the Jews could have very easily taken him out and stoned him just as they did uh, to Stephen but they didn't because they wanted him to be crucified so that everybody would look upon him with disdain to despise him and then the story really begins to take off it says Pilate begins to speak to them and ask are you the king of the Jews and Jesus replies Notice how Jesus is in charge. Notice what he says. Is that your own idea? Pilate thinks he is the most powerful man in all of the nation. And in many ways he is. But as Jesus speaks to him, he says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? We think of Jesus being there as a victim. But think back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? 
and they began. Some say this, some say that, and then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? It's reminiscent, and Jesus says, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate's kind of bristled by it all. Am I a Jew? Jesus wouldn't have asked that question if he wasn't in control. Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus continues to guide the conversation. He's not there to defend himself. Notice what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. See, Pilate just needs to, to make a quick assessment. Is this guy going to try to overthrow Rome, or is he a non-factor? If my servants, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. So he's identifying, because Pilate's wondering, where's your army? Where are your followers? The only person that raised the blade was Peter when he cut off the ear of Malchus, and Jesus stopped that. So where's your revolution? Jesus said, it's not of this world. Oh, you are a king. And Jesus continues to guide the conversation. You say that I'm a king. In fact, it was for that reason that I was born, and I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Here is Jesus, who was already identified himself in John 14, 6, to say that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And also in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, he said, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We feel as if, and we have for so long, as if Pilate is in charge, but he's not. What is John doing? He's saying, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is sovereign over every power in the world. And he says, you can have the truth, and the truth can set you free. And that's what Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate didn't care about truth. Much like our culture today, we don't care about truth as much as power. Because if you have power, then you can dictate what truth is. You can make people do whatever you want if you have power. Truth can't be spun. It simply exists. And we can submit to it, or we can be broken by it. We find that Pilate recognizes what's going on here. And he goes back out to the religious leaders, and he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Three different times, Pilate says he's innocent, which puts him in a really big predicament. How can he kill an innocent man? He's done that many times. He's murdered many people without even a trial. But he can't upset the Jews. He can't upset the Jerusalem. He knows that if, he, if he's not careful with Jesus, there might be a riot. Religious leaders are thinking the same thing. And he tells him, I find no basis for charging him, but you have a custom. A custom at Passover is when he would release a prisoner. They could pick whoever. So he says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Maybe you guys just got in a little bit of a spat here, and that's why you're here. And so to, to kind of make it easier for everybody, for me, for you, for everybody, for this guy that we call the king of the Jews, and he looked at him and said, how in the world can you be a king of the Jews? He was, he was bleeding, he was battered, he was dressed in emaciated-looking clothes, and a noose around his neck, and saying, how could this be the king of the Jews? 
Let's all move beyond this farce here. Let's all get ourselves out of this situation. I'll release for you one of the prisoners. John doesn't go into all of the details that we find in the other Gospels, but you have this tug of war going on between Barabbas and Jesus. They shouted back, and this is all that John gives us. We can go to the other Gospels, and the reason, remember, he's writing six decades after Jesus had been crucified. Many will say he's writing this even after he wrote the book of Revelation. So he says, you can go back to all of that. He simply says in a very brief statement, they say, no, not him, give us Barabbas. We find in the other Gospels that we know that Barabbas is a notorious murderer. He has been convicted of the very thing that they're saying Jesus is guilty of. Yet they cry out for Barabbas, and in the crying out for Barabbas, something very interesting takes place. Origen was an early church father, writing in the third century. It tells us that Barabbas had the name of Jesus Barabbas. And the name Barabbas means son of a father. So as this collective crowd gathered, the chief priest and the crowd that was there that they were influencing, as they gathered together and they cried for Barabbas, they were saying, give us Jesus, the son of a father, rather than Jesus, the son of the father. A decision that so many make. Barabbas went free. We never heard told the story of what that must have looked like. Barabbas was on the very area in which that decision was made. But he was far enough removed where he could hear this dialogue going on as you look at the other Gospels. In which they would cry out, Barabbas. You couldn't hear the voice of Pilate. Who do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? They would cry out, Barabbas. He knows that he is guilty and to be executed. Pilate says, then what will I do with Jesus? Barabbas can't hear that. But he heard the crowd yell, Barabbas! The next thing he hears the crowd yelling, crucify him. Then he hears a key rattling in his cell door. Hands beginning to tremble, knowing full well what crucifixion will be like only to find the door swing open and he's free. A picture of what has happened for you and me. The door has swung open and we can be set free. Jesus' sovereignty is certain. As we look over this passage of Scripture, it tells us that every single detail, everything that happened, Jesus was in charge. So if Christ is certain, John is saying, then your salvation is sure. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you come to the realization that God loves you and he's created you to have a relationship with him? That's why Jesus came. Because we can't create a relationship with God on our own. It's only through Christ. He is the only one that can make us right with God. All we have to do, he did the hard part. He died in our place. Substitutionary atonement is called. The only one that could. All we have to do is humbly repent of our sins, 
surrender our life to Jesus Christ and invite him to be Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I pray that you will. Join me in this prayer. Father, for any friends listening here today that have never received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they recognize that they are in desperate need of your forgiveness. That they would voice a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, this room is filled with many Christians. And what is the message for us today? You are sovereign. You are not a victim of circumstances. You are not a, a victim of manipulation in which the religious leaders and Pilate and all of them manipulated the system. You dictated everything that took place. This was your courtroom. You were the judge. You were the king. And you are. God, may we be reminded that you are not some helpless victim, but you are the reigning king who came with a sole purpose to liberate us from our sins. God, as Christians, help us to realize it's not just for a point in the future which we cross from this life to the next and we for the first time reap the benefits of your sacrificial death. But God, may we even now in this moment, in this day, take on the power that is ours with open hands to receive the gift of eternal and abundant life. Your power for us to live the life that you have created for us. May we do so. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you need to take your next step in your faith journey, maybe you received Christ in the last couple of moments, we'd love to speak to you after the service, but you can speak to anyone around you. Just grab them by the hand and say, would you help me to better understand what it means to be a Christian? You may decide that you want to be a part of this church fellowship through church membership, which is a vital part of being a Christian. So many people want to walk at a distance from the church. God has called us to be actively engaged in a church, not sporadically, not showing up occasionally, but to be actively engaged with a body of believers, accomplishing kingdom work. If you want to become a member of the church, let us know about that. You can text Westgate to 94,000 on your phone. And I pray that all of us, would leave here committed to following hard after Christ. Let's stand together and worship.
great week. Don't forget, we have markers available over in the worship center. If you didn't sign a name or write a scripture verse last week, you can go over to the worship center and grab a marker and sign your name of somebody you're praying for or write a scripture verse.